If you'll turn in your Bibles tonight to Judges chapter 11 as we continue on in the wild world of the book of Judges. When you find that chapter, if you'll please rise to your feet for the reverent reading and hearing of God's holy and precious word to us found in Judges chapter 11, beginning in verse 29. Then the Spirit of the Lord was upon Jephthah, and he passed through Gilead and Manasseh, and passed on to Mizpah of Gilead. From Mizpah of Gilead, he passed on to the Ammonites. And Jephthah made a vow to the Lord, said, If you will give the Ammonites into my hands, then whatever comes out from the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the Ammonites shall be the Lord's, and I'll offer it up for a burnt offering. So Jephthah crossed over to the Ammonites to fight against them. And the Lord gave them into his hands. So he struck them from Aurora to the neighborhood of Minneth, 20 cities as far as Abelkerim, with a great blow. So the Ammonites were subdued before the people of Israel. And Jephthah came to his home at Mizpah, and behold, his daughter came out to meet him with tambourines and with dances. She was his only child. Beside her, he had neither son nor daughter. And as soon as he saw her, he tore his clothes and said, Alas, my daughter, you have brought me very low and have become the cause of great trouble to me. For I have opened my mouth to the Lord, and I cannot take back my vow. She said to him, My father, you have opened your mouth to the Lord. Do to me according to what has gone out of your mouth, now that the Lord has avenged you on your enemies, on the Ammonites. So she said to her father, Let this thing be done for me. Leave me alone two months that I may go up and down on the mountains and weep for my virginity, I and my companions. So he said, go. Then he sent her away for two months, and she departed, she and her companions, and wept for her virginity on the mountains. And at the end of two months, she returned to her father, who did with her according to the vow that he had made. She had never known a man, and it became a custom in Israel that the daughters of Israel went year by year to lament the daughter of Jephthah the Gileadite, four days in the year. Thus the reading of God's word. You may be seated. James in his epistle says those very famous words that we all stumble in many ways. And if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. And the world Excuse me, and the tongue is a world of unrighteousness, James goes on to say. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. But no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. With it, we bless our Lord and our Father. With it, we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth, James says, comes blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not be so. When we read such a passage as that, we think you're right, James, but perhaps you're over-exaggerating a bit. Maybe you're saying this to make a point, to stress and emphasize the truth. But with James, I don't think that he is over-exaggerating. The tongue is a great problem in all of us. James is seeing, saying, if you 
would need to be a perfect man or a perfect woman to bridle the tongue. That is an impossibility. And we cannot tame the tongue so that it never sins. From it comes blessing and curses. Come it comes from it good as well as evil from the same source. Now we quickly realize that the tongue is ultimately not the problem, is it? Our tongues do not act independently. They are attached to a mind and a heart as an instrument of communication. Our tongues are ultimately a reflection of our heart and our mind and even our emotions. Our tongues ultimately manifest externally what is going on internally. As Jesus says, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And so what do our tongues reveal? Well, our tongues reveal that our hearts are sinful and evil. If you think about what gets you perhaps in the most trouble with others, with your spouse, with your children, or with your parents you would have to say that it is your words, it is your tongue, it is your mouth. The things that we say that we shouldn't say, or the things that we did not say that we should have said. We have both the sins of commission, words of sin and evil, as well as the words of omission, those words that lack love and grace and mercy. And so yes, the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. Because it's an expression of the heart. It reveals the heart. Words indeed have started wars. They've caused divorces. They've done inexplicable damage and hurt and pain. And even in our passage tonight, we see that our words can even cause death. This week and next week, we will see that Jephthah did not use his words in a right way or manner. Tonight we'll see that he had a false reality of his relationship with God. Next week we'll see a false reality with his relationship with others. But in both cases we'll see that they were both tragic and in fact caused death. Tonight the death of his own daughter. Next week the death of 42,000 of his own brothers, his fellow Israelites. It demonstrates that the tongue indeed is a great fire. And so we'll look at this very curious passage tonight under two points, a deal with God and a deal that demands all. First, a deal with God. As we begin this passage, we must say that this is indeed not only one of the most tragic stories in the book of Judges, which is saying something, it's also one of the most tragic and perhaps troubling stories in the whole of Scripture Not only is it difficult to understand and interpret it, it's also full of ethical dilemmas. If you could liken Judges 11 to yarn, we'd have to say that it is a tangled mess, and we'll not be able to untangle all of it tonight. But perhaps we're not supposed to. Perhaps it's because this is not a story that ends with a happy ending, a happy ever after. No, in Indeed, it ends with a tragic ending. And so I appreciate your understanding and even your prayers as we look to explain this passage this night. Well, as we saw last week, if you were with us, Jephthah rises to rulership through a circuitous route. 
We read that he is the son of Gilead, which was a prominent man in Manasseh, enough to have a whole city named after him, after his father. And so on the one hand, he was the son of a a prominent man, the son of Gilead. And on the other hand, well, he wasn't the son of Gilead because he was an illegitimate son. In fact, he was the son of a prostitute. And so he is cast out of his home. He's sent to another town, another city. His family doesn't want him around, doesn't want that shame, perhaps, of his very presence, of that illegitimate relationship between his father and that of a prostitute. And Jephthah's brothers have no care, no concern for him, until, that is, they run into a problem with the Ammonites. The Ammonites are making life miserable for them. So they essentially go, hey, worthless brother, you have worth now. We need you. Come help us. To which Jephthah says, well, why should I? What is it that I'm going to get out of it? Well, we will make you judge. We will make you the leader of us. To which Jephthah agrees. He tells them to essentially sign on the dotted line. And you might think this is quite a weird way to become a leader of your brothers, and you would not be incorrect in many ways. It's like the story of Joseph, if you remember that. But again, if you're wanting a logical, rational reason, the the book of Judges is probably not the book for you. And so Jephthah does come to the aid of his brothers, and he begins with peace talks with the king of the Ammonites. And he says, king of Ammon, you are mad because you think this is your land, that you have a right to it. Well, you don't, and this is why. And we saw last week how he gives a whole history lesson to set the record straight. But at the very end of our passage, you see that in verse 28, the king of the Ammonites did not listen to the words of Jephthah that he sent to him. In other words, the king of the Ammonites has nothing to do with Jephthah. He is not going to listen to his words. And so this war of words turns into an actual war. And that is what leads us to our passage tonight. We see that Jephthah gets his men together and he goes on a march. And we see in verse 29 that there is a little bit of a a build-up before there is the actual war. And the author of Judges makes that very clear. He tells how Jephthah passed through Gilead and Manasseh and then to Mizpah. And from Mizpah to Gilead, he passed on to the Ammonites. You, You see this progression. And perhaps that is purposeful. Perhaps as Jephthah is getting closer to the enemies, the pressure begins to mount outwardly, but also inwardly. Perhaps it's not quite the same, but maybe it's like in our own life when there is a a big game with one of our favorite teams, or maybe there's a a big test or a, a big project at work. For days before, you're as cool as a cucumber, not a care in the world, but as it gets closer and closer, what happens? The, the pressure, the anxiety, the worry comes flooding in. And I think that is perhaps what it was like for Jephthah. We know that he fought many fights before. He had many battles before this, but this is really the, the big one. 
There is no backing down from it. And, and what if he doesn't make it? What if he fails? And not to psychologize Jephthah, but you might understand that this was his one shining moment. That his brothers, those same brothers that had cast him away, that had rejected him, needed him now. And he could not fail. This was his kind of moment of redemption. Or he would demonstrate his worth, perhaps demonstrate to his brothers that he was truly worthy. That he was indeed worth being called a a true son of Gilead. That he was a true mighty warrior as we were first introduced to him at the beginning of chapter 11. And so you can perhaps see that there was this tremendous pressure as he is the leader of Israelites' armies. And as a result, he had a reputation to keep. And that this would even perhaps propel him along. This would give him some prominence. It would allow him to be the ultimate leader and judge over his people. And yet, instead of allowing that pressure to cast himself on the mercy of God, he essentially tries to strike a deal with God. In the form of a vow, you see that in verses 30 and 31. God, if you will give the Ammonites into my hands, then whatever comes out from the doors of my house to meet me when I return shall be yours. I'll offer it up as a burnt offering. Do you see that Jephthah was, was good? He was good at making deals. He essentially had made one with his brothers, right? If, if I help you, then you are going to make me your ruler. You're going to make me your leader, your judge. He tried to do something of the same even with the, the king of Ammon. Listen, king, if, if you hear me, then we do not need to go to war, do we? And so he essentially does the same to God. It's a if-then scenario. If God, you do this, then I will do that. Now, to his credit, that is how most relationships with the gods of this world had worked. In that time and in that place, it was a a quid pro quo relationship. Do this and the gods will bless you. Do that and the gods will bless you. Don't do it and they will curse you. And so perhaps the, the culture of Jephthah's day influenced his relationship with the true God, with, with the Lord our God. But what is it that we see throughout Scripture? Well, God is not like the gods of this world, which are no gods at all. He is not even like man. His thoughts are not our thoughts. His ways are not our ways. Again, we might want to rightfully criticize Jephthah for his, his foolish words and his rash vow. But his thinking is not incorrect, at least in the human sense. If someone is going to do something for you, the rational thought is, what is it that they're going to get out of it? Likewise, if we're going to do something for, for someone else, what do we get out of it? <coughs> it has to be worth our time and our efforts, even our most charitable actions have at least 
some payback, don't they? They make us feel good. We think that we are being profitable to society. We are making a difference. In other words, even our best, most selfless deeds are never purely selfless, are they? So why would God not operate in the same manner? God, you do this, and then I will do that. Well, again, what's wrong with that thinking is that it assumes that we have something to offer to God. It assumes that we have something to bring to the table, that we have something to give, something that God doesn't have, or that God desires, that that he does not already possess, and that we can give it to him. And that is not true. That is never true. In fact, we believe in the aseity of God. Now, that is your your 10-cent theological word for the nights. Aseity, A-S-E-I-T-Y. It's a word you probably haven't heard, but it is a very important word. It means that we believe in the self-existence of God. That God is the only true independent being. Is not in need of anything or anybody. Or perhaps I like to say it this way. I know it's not proper English because it's a, a double negative, but it makes the point. He is not in need of nobody or nothing. In other words, we do not have a, any bargaining chips When it comes to God, this is a true story of myself. It's not a flattering one at all. But in the past, one time, and I can say thankfully only one time, I I played one of those scratch-off lottery tickets. Because in my thoughts, or in my mind, I thought, Lord, if you just let me win. I will donate half of this to the church. 50-50, you and me, God. Let's go into this. Let's do this. It's foolish thinking, isn't it? As if the Lord of heaven and earth is sitting in heaven going, hey, now, that's a, that's a good deal. As if he's saying, you know, I, I, I really need that money. I could really use that. Now, what does Psalm 50 say? I will not accept a bull from your house or goats from your fold, for every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hill. I know all the birds of the hill, and all that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world and its fullness are mine. Do I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? Perhaps to modernize that, we could say, God is telling us, I will not accept your your monetary contributions for all the money, all the stocks, all the Bitcoin is mine. If I needed money, I would not ask because the world and everything in it is mine. You hear what the, the Lord is saying? Don't think that in bringing me something, you are bringing me anything I don't have. I have it all. All of it belongs to me. You cannot curry favor with me. And that was ultimately Jephthah's faulty thinking, wasn't it? 
help me, God, and I will essentially help you. Give me and give to me and I will give to you. Scratch my back and I will scratch yours. And we need to understand, we need to recognize that faulty thinking, that faulty theology. We see this often in many false teachers, modern teachers, perhaps we could even say TV preachers, that if you'll send in this contribution, then you will receive a a blessing from heaven. That's idolatry, my brothers. That's a, a different God. That is not of our God. But it's easy to point the finger out there, but it's hard to point the finger at us, but it's prevalent in us as well. You know what, God? I've been doing pretty good lately. I've been cussing less and reading my Bible more. I've been praying for others and not just myself. I've been going to church, even in the evening. So God, would you... X. We hear the faulty thinking there, or the faulty thoughts. No, we need to be reminded that all the blessings, all the good, it's all by God's grace and through his mercy. It's undeserved. It's not by our hands. I heard recently a saying that said, if you see a turtle sunning himself on the top of a fence post, you know he's had a hand. We're all those turtles on top of the fence post, sunning themselves. And that hand that we have received is ultimately the the hand of God. That is not by our own doing. God did not need Jephthah. He did not need Jephthah to defeat the Ammonites. He was pleased to use him, but he did not need him. Rather, it was the opposite. Jephthah needed God. In fact, he already had him, and he had all that he needed. Did you notice the the beginning words of our passage tonight? Then the Spirit of the Lord was upon Jephthah. That Jephthah had the Spirit of the Lord. That Jephthah had in God all that he stood in need of. That he had the, the same Spirit, the same Spirit that dwells in us today. And likewise, we must say the same, God doesn't need us. We need God, and we need his Holy Spirit, and therefore we can never make a deal with God. God is not in the negotiation business, and that comes as a painful lesson to Jephthah, because we see second then a a deal that demands all. In a sense, God fulfills Jephthah's quote-unquote deal. We see that Jephthah has success. In fact, he has great success, unprecedented success. He has complete dominance. We read of this in, in verses 32 through 33. We see that he was able to defeat not just one city, not two cities, not 10 cities, but 20 cities of the Ammonites, essentially from one side to the other. It's a a great victory. It's a complete dominance. And as a result, there's a a great celebration. And it seems that the the word spreads quickly back to the Israelites. Because by the time that he comes back, there's a a victory party, perhaps uh, a victory parade. Perhaps we've seen some of those over this last couple days. 
that is coming to meet Jephthah and all those that are returning from the battlefield. And it's led by who? Jephthah's daughter. Now, we're not sure what Jephthah thought. We're not sure what he believed was going to be the first thing that comes from his house. Was it a a dog? Was it a donkey? Was it a pet lamb? Was it a servant? Was it a slave? Perhaps he thought his mother-in-law would be the first one to greet him. I don't know. But whatever it was, Jephthah surely did not think that it would be his daughter. And we know this by both his actions as well as his words. Because it says in verse 35, he tore his clothes and says, Alas, my daughter, you have brought me very low, and you have become the cause of great trouble to me. In that moment, he realizes the the costliness of his words and of his vow, that indeed it would cost him everything. This great victory quickly turns into to great sorrow, doesn't it? And it's even heightened. Why? Because this wasn't just one daughter of, of many, or one child of, of many sons and daughters, which surely would not have made it much better, but we see that it's even worse. It's even much more of a bitter pill because we see that he only had one child, one daughter. In fact, the author says she was his only child. The Lord obviously had prevented any other children to be born into Jephthah's home, into his house, perhaps even closing up the womb. One and only one child. Now even that one would be taken. And so why his child? Why his daughter? Well, I think it was in part a signal to Jephthah that it was all a gift. Everything had been given to him by God. It was not earned. It was given as a a gift, a, a gift of blessing, all of his grace and all by his mercy. Now, one of his gifts, you could even perhaps say his his greatest gift, his most treasured possession was also going to be taken from him. Now, many try to soften this passage and say, well, Jephthah actually didn't go through with it. He rather made his daughter take a, a vow of singleness for the remainder of her life. Because we see that her and her friends go and, and mourn her virginity, not her impending death. And as I said, there's many that would say this and, and make, I would say, a compelling argument. But I think that what we see here is that they went off to mourn. And mourn more than just her not being able to be married. And mourn for more than just not being able to have kids, but actually mourn through those losses, the the very fact that was going to be the reason why she wasn't going to be able to get married, the reason that she was not going to be able to have kids was because she was going to die. Because in that day and age, in that culture, to die childless was essentially to be remembered no more, to have no children, no grandchildren, no great-grandchildren for your memory and legacy to live on in and through. And in fact, I think that is confirmed when we read that in verse 40, that year by year, the daughters of Israel 
went to lament the daughter of, of Jephthah. They went to lament because she had died as a result of her father's rash vow, foolish vow. If she was still amongst them, it would have been quite strange that they would have gone and lamented if she was just right over there in the convent. Now, should have Jephthah made such a vow? We have to say absolutely not. All would agree upon that. It was foolish words. It was foolish and and reckless and rash vow. Should Jephthah have gone through with the vow? Well, that is indeed the horns of this ethical dilemma, isn't it? One that I'm not going to answer and one that I don't know if I could answer. Because on the one hand, you, you have in the law that human sacrifice was an abomination to God. And on the other hand, we read that if a man makes a vow to the Lord, he shall not break that vow. He shall do all that proceeds out of his mouth. And so I will let you debate afterwards in the, the pews what should have been done, what should not have been done. But I'll say this much. We live in a world where words are cheap. Vows and oaths are broken all the time. Oaths under law, vows at the wedding altar, broken contracts, and we can go on and on and on, can't we? Yet listen to what the scripture says. In Psalm 15, the psalmist says, O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? And then it gives several things, and one of which says, one who swears to his own hurt and does not change. That is the problem with today, isn't it? People will will promise, they will swear as long as it benefits them. But when it doesn't, they're out. They're willing to, to break any of those words that they previously said. And what we can at the very least say, if Jephthah went through with this, again, not commending it in the least, this was truly swearing to his own hurt, wasn't it? And we have to admire not only the, the words of Jephthah, but the words of Jephthah's daughters, daughter. Because as Jephthah says, I, I cannot take back my vow. And then she says to him, verse 36, my father, you have opened your mouth to the Lord. Do to me according to what has gone out of your mouth. Now that the Lord has avenged you on your enemies, on the Ammonites. She won't let her father back down from his words, will she? She self-sacrificially gives of herself her own father's foolishness. And here, my friends, I think you begin to see part of the redemption of this passage, don't you? That this story, as as twisted and wicked as it is, has those distant echoes of redemption throughout it. The redemption that we find in the Lord Jesus Christ. Much like the, the prodigal. You remember that parable in Luke chapter 15 that all that was was given to this son. 
He had thought that it was all given to him because he had earned it, because he had merited it, when in reality it was a, a gift from his father. And what does he do with it? He goes and squanders it in reckless, selfish living until there was nothing left, until he finds himself at the the bottom of the bottom, the bottom of the barrel. He finds himself as a Jew taking care of pigs, which were the unclean of the unclean. And there in the pig pit, he has this realization, you know, I had it pretty good in my father's house, but I can't go back. At least I cannot go back as a son. I can only go back as a servant, perhaps as a slave. And you know the rest of the story. As he returns, the father sees him and runs to him and pours out grace upon grace, favor upon favor, unmerited, undeserved. He even kills the the fattened calf. That is our God. But it's even more than that, isn't it? Because in our case, it's not just the fatted calf, is it? God sacrifices his only son, his only begotten son, for he only had one son that was sent for you and, and sent for me, sent to die for those that were undeserving. And so with Jephthah's daughters, you want to, to go, whoa, 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 hey, you cannot do that. She didn't do anything wrong. That's unfair. That's unjust. You got the wrong person that is suffering the punishment of somebody else's sin. Jephthah's the wrongdoer. You need to punish him. But don't you see, my friends, the same is true with Christ. And even more so. We should be saying, no, 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 no. You have the the wrong person. He did not do anything wrong. But instead of saying, it's Jephthah, we should be saying, it's me. That it's the words of my mouth. It's the deeds of my life that should put me to death. I am the the guilty one. My mouth is the one that, that has stained the whole body, that is set on fire by hell itself. That I'm the restless evil, full of deadly poison. Do we not see? And are we not convicted? We're so hot and bothered by the injustice of the death of Jephthah's daughters. But have we grown accustomed to our own sin and the injustice of Christ's death in our place? My friends, Christ for you and for me is infinitely more unjust than Jephthah's daughter's daughter. Yet she, as we see, died before her time, but Christ came into time, into the fullness of time for us. Christ had no reason to die, and yet he did. Why did he do it? Well, because he made a deal, not with us, but with his father. Saying to the to the father, if, if I die in their place, then they must have life eternally. Do you not hear the, the words of Christ even in Jephthah's daughter's mouth? 
you have opened your mouth. Do to me according to what has gone out of your mouth. That this was the, the covenant that is being fulfilled from all of eternity. And Christ is saying, let that covenant curse fall upon me so that they may receive all the benefits of that covenant, of that deal as a gift, a gift of grace and a gift of mercy, not for those that have earned it, not for those that have merited it because there are none, only those that receive it by faith as a gift of grace. Jephthah learned the lesson the hard way, the cost of his own sin, the cost of another dying in his stead. Did he understand redemption and grace from it? We, we may never know. But how about us? Do we know? Do we understand the injustice of the cross and the cost and yet the grace and the gift that flows from it? I hope so. Because if so, love that amazing Love that, demi- love that divine demands my soul, my life, my all.